Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. President Biden is in Poland. What is he doing just 60 miles from the Ukrainian border? And what new commitments has the U.S. made today? Russian President Vladimir Putin is accusing the West of trying to cancel Russian culture. This comes after several Russian artists have had their performances cancelled since Russia invaded Ukraine. A Republican congressman says he didn't know about illegal funds he received in a campaign fundraiser. But a jury says he did. The Supreme Court delayed a death row prisoner's execution after the Texas criminal system denied him the presence of clergy. Is he acting on religious conviction or just trying to stay alive? The issue of transgender athletes competing in girls' sports is prompting action from Republicans nationwide. Arizona and Oklahoma become the third and fourth states to take action this week. Arizona also moves to ban gender reassignment surgery for minors. Following a marathon of NATO and EU meetings in Brussels, President Biden today visits Poland. Plus, a new deal by the U.S. to reduce Russian leverage on Europe. NTD's Iris Tau has more. President Biden has arrived in Poland, which is bearing the brunt of an exodus of refugees from Ukraine. Let's keep the democracies united. And to show unity, the Friday trip follows a series of meetings among Western leaders and a Thursday announcement that the U.S. would accept 100,000 Ukrainians fleeing the country. And visiting the Polish town of Jeshulv today, Biden was just about 60 miles from the Ukraine border. But he said he wasn't allowed to go there due to security concerns. Crisis, and quite frankly, part of my disappointment is that uh, I can't see it firsthand. Biden was speaking alongside the Polish president as he was briefed on the refugee situation. He also compared Ukrainians to those who stood up to the Chinese communist regime. When you see a 30-year-old woman standing there in front of a tank with a, with, a, with a rifle, I mean, talk about what happened in Tiananmen Square. That's Tiananmen Square Square. The president also met with U.S. troops stationed in Poland, telling them that they're in a fight between democracies and autocracies. What you're engaged in is much more than just whether or not you can alleviate the pain and suffering of the people of Ukraine. We're in a new phase. Your generation, we're in an inflection point. And earlier on Friday... We're coming together to reduce Europe's dependence on Russian energy. The U.S. and the EU announced a new deal to reduce the continent's reliance on Russian energy. The U.S. will work to supply 15 billion cubic meters of liquefied natural gas, or LNG, to the European Union this year. And on Saturday, Biden will hold a bilateral meeting with the Poland president to talk about the current refugee crisis. And before heading back to Washington, Biden will also deliver a, quote, major address to wrap up his trip to Europe. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. During his trip, President Biden warned that parts of the globe can't expect to see food shortages. He said sanctions on Russia will affect the U.S. and other countries, too. Earlier today, I spoke to par foreign policy expert Harley Lippmann to learn more about this. He studied at the Ukrainian Research Institute at Harvard and was also a key negotiator on the Abraham Accords. Harley, thank you for joining us. 
My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And could you explain to our viewers why Ukraine and Russia are important players in the food supply chain? Well, if you just take wheat, for example, Russia and Ukraine make up 30% of the world's wheat. So that has a huge impact. Just think of cereal or so many other foods that have wheat in it. So they, the, the, the black soil of Ukraine is known as an incredible breadbasket, incredibly fertile, and they export a huge amount of food to the world. Right, and the sanctions have affected that. And indeed, fertilizer bills are also expected to jump by 12% this year after Russia told its fertilizer producers to halt exports. So how soon could a food shortage hit the U.S., and what might that look like? Well, it has already happened, so the food shortage has hit. It's already been here because of COVID. We've had weakness in the supply chain. And what else affects a food shortage is weather. There's been droughts around the world, so food production has, has declined already. And now it's like a perfect storm. With the war in Ukraine, it's only going to get worse. So what the, United, what the Biden administration can do is, frankly, not that much. There isn't, but it can do a few things. One is it could coordinate with countries around the world and make sure that there's open and free trade. Once you get protectionism and restrictions, it just hurt, hurts all parties. The second is they could create a safety net for the bottom 10 or 20% of the world because it's the poor people that are going to be affected the most. So if they have some humanitarian way of getting people food, that would be another way that the Biden administration can make a difference. Actually, there is something else that can be done uh, to help countries is to give money to farmers. Because right. we used to actually give money to farmers not to grow crops. Because like 50 years ago, we had a surplus of agricultural crops. We don't anymore. We have a reservoir and surplus of oil, for example. We have strong oil reserves, but we don't have for food. Nobody thought about this. This is something that seems to have surprised everyone. So the challenge that farmers have right now, actually, is that if they grow wheat, they're afraid if all of a sudden Ukrainian crisis is resolved, they're going to be left holding the bag. Because for them, they have to pay a lot more money for fuel and for fertilizer. So even though they're eager to grow wheat because they can get more money, since the cost of, of wheat is going up a lot and they'll make more money, they have to balance it against the higher cost of fertilizer and fuel. So it has to make good business sense for farmers. And this is where the government could weigh in and make sure that this is a win-win so we have the food supplies that we need. And what can people do to avoid being punished by those high prices? Well, shift. That's what this is all about now. It's a great time to make cornbread. It's a great time to bring out grandma's recipe for lentil soup. Let's celebrate Ukraine and have borscht, potatoes. Um, this is what you have to do. Make your own food. <laughs> Grow your own food. <laughs> Harley Lippmann, thank you. Thank you. Biden announced today that the U.S. will be working with the European Union to increase global food security and directly provide food supply. That he says also that the European countries are being urged to end trade restrictions for sending food abroad. And the Russian Defense Ministry says they've completed the first phase of the war. They say they will now focus on Ukraine's eastern Donbass region. Russia says the objectives of the first phase of war have generally been accomplished without elaborating. 
Their statement says, quote, the combat potential of the armed forces of Ukraine has been considerably reduced, which makes it possible to focus on the main efforts to achieve the main goal of liberation of Donbass. Donbass refers to Ukraine's Luhansk region and Donetsk region in the east bordering Russia. Pro-Russian separatists have been controlling parts of the region since 2014. Russia says that Russian-backed separatists now control 93% of the Luhansk region and 54% of the Donetsk region. And on this week's episode of NTD's The Nation Speaks, Russian President Vladimir Putin says the West is trying to cancel Russian culture. He's referring to events featuring Russian artists that were recently cancelled in Western countries. NTD's Jason Perry has that story. Today, they're trying to cancel the whole country, which has a thousand-year history. Russian President Vladimir Putin spoke during a televised meeting with cultural figures and mentioned that many Russian artists have been canceled recently in Western countries. I am talking about ongoing discrimination against everything that has to do with Russia, about that tendency which is developing in a number of Western states with the full complicity and sometimes the full encouragement of the ruling elites. Soon after Russia invaded Ukraine, the European Broadcasting Union announced that no Russian act will take part in this year's Eurovision Song Contest. And according to The Guardian, the tours of three different Russian ballet companies were also recently canceled. And Billboard has an ongoing list of musicians canceling their performances in Russia. This should be a warning sign. When you start thinking that, you know, because President Putin you know, does horrible things in Ukraine, we have to stop listening to Tchaikovsky. Gary Saul Morrison is a professor of arts and humanities and Slavic languages and literature. He explained cancel culture on Cindy Drew Cares, The Nation Speaks. <clears throat> you know, I, I suppose it should have been expected because, you know, the way cancel culture works is that there are good guys and bad guys and, you know, and there is no gray area. Everything's on even remotely associated with the bad guys becomes bad. And so you just apply it to a new topic, the, the Russians. He thinks the way to help prevent cancel culture is to reason with people. For example, by saying it really doesn't make sense to cancel this Russian concert and to appeal to people's sound judgment. And some of them will respond. Jason Perry, NTD News. And also on The Nation Speaks, how is the war affecting life for everyday Russians? NTD speaks with a Russian professor to find out. I think now. Konstantin Sonin is a professor of political economy at the University of Chicago. He is Russian and was in Moscow when the war broke out, but he left the country soon after. He tells NTD how the war and Western sanctions have changed the lives of those living in Russia. The inflation started to pick up, the prices went, went up, the exchange and the exchange rate of the ruble um, dropped down, and uh, the government uh, basically frozen the currency accounts, so people cannot withdraw their savings, which were in dollars. They could only do this in rubles. He says Russians are also starting to leave the country due to the political and economic environment. A couple of hundreds of thousands of people left Russia since the beginning of the war, uh, moving immediately to Istanbul, to Yerevan in Armenia, to Tbilisi in Georgia, or to Baltic countries. A lot of people are just fleeing uh, the, the regime. People expect economic hardship. People expect uh, political crackdown. A lot of people who were 
Um, I mean, they were not political oppositioners, they were not uh, columnists, they were just expressing their opinion, for example, that uh, they do not want this war, and now this is criminal, you cannot even call the war a war, because this is a crime by the, by the new laws. So a lot of people just run um, because they feared for their freedom, and this is mostly intellectuals, academic, IT professionals, um, journalists, people who are basically the best brains in Russia. The professor says there are rules on how people can discuss the current war. The Russian government has blocked access to Facebook, and Sonin says people could be punished for social media posts. But he says the situation in Russia right now isn't like the Soviet era yet. I would say that the totality of the control, like the fact that you could be punished for just saying something, even for sending, I don't know, private information on your messengers, messenger, you could be prosecuted. This is like in Soviet times, but it's not yet that bad economically. The professor also says it's worth paying attention to the state of Russia's economy as Western sanctions continue to impact the Russian people. To watch the full interviews, tune in to The Nation Speaks with Cindy Drucker at 11 a.m. Saturday. Thousands of villages are spread across Ukraine's countryside and all are feeling the effects of the war in one way or another. NTD's Dan Skorback visits one of these villages to find out how the war has changed their lives. More than 28,000 villages form the backbone of Ukraine, each with a church, a store and a cluster of homes, filled with families living the traditional lifestyle, feeding themselves off the land. We visited Kote, population 400, to find out how life has changed during war in the heartland. For some, the war started eight years ago. Oksana Salabai lost her brother who died fighting pro-Russian separatists. His last words were, and we didn't want to let him go. He said, my family is there. I need to go there to fight, to defend you so that you have freedom. We also talked to Viktor Pokrovsky, who was born in Russia. He told us why he loves Ukraine. It's so beautiful when the apple trees bloom with white flowers. Well, I have six kids here. What's not to love here? Should I not love my neighbor? He helps me. But his family in Russia is convinced that he is being persecuted by Ukrainian Nazis. Mihailo Romanishin's sister moved to Russia from Ukraine in 1964. He is shocked that she is now also convinced by the Russian propaganda. She said, what are you doing here? You're killing people in Ukraine. We replied to her, we're not killing. It's Putin who attacked Ukraine. Today he dropped a bomb on the training facility here and you're telling us that we started the war? But she's convinced that Ukraine started a war against Russia. Although Kote is hundreds of miles away from the front lines, several long-range missiles hit a training facility near the village on March 13th. Although it's a small village in western Ukraine, Kote is a microcosm of how war affects the whole country beyond the front lines. Dan Skorback, NTD News, Ukraine. Senator Joe Manchin all but ensures that Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson will be confirmed to the U.S. Supreme Court. Today, the Democrat from West Virginia released a statement saying he will support Jackson's nomination to the high court. Manchin says after meeting with Jackson and considering her record, he determined she is, quote, supremely qualified and has the disposition necessary to be a Supreme Court justice. 
If Senate Democrats vote unanimously in Jackson's favor, they can confirm Jackson without any Republican backing. If the vote is partisan and split at 50-50, Vice President Kamala Harris would then cast the tie-breaking ballot. A vote has not been scheduled yet. And the Supreme Court has given an update on Justice Clarence Thomas. It says he was discharged from the hospital today after staying there for nearly a week. He had entered the hospital after experiencing flu-like symptoms. The court said Thomas did not have COVID-19. Thomas, a conservative justice and appointee of former President George H.W. Bush, has been on the court since 1991. And a man on death row in Texas can have his pastor pray with him while he's being executed. That's according to a Thursday Supreme Court ruling. The decision is the latest chapter in the nearly three-year-long dispute. NTD's Arlene Richards has the story. The Supreme Court put a hold on a Texas death row inmate's execution on Thursday and said federal law permits him to have clergy present at his execution. Writing for the court in an 8-to-1 ruling, Chief Justice John Roberts noted that there is a rich history of clerical prayer at the time of a prisoner's execution. In addition to having clergy present, the inmate, John Ramirez, wants his pastor to be permitted to touch him while the lethal drugs that will end his life are being administered. Ramirez's attorney, Seth Kretzer, said the Texas prison changed its policy back to allowing pastors last year. This was after eliminating clergy in 2019, when officials learned that Ramirez's pastor, who doesn't work for them, wanted to lay hands on the prisoner. They said touching wasn't allowed. Then they changed their policy again. The pastor Moore is not allowed to pray. So that massively shifted the focus of the lawsuit. It started out, you can't touch him, to move to, you may not pray aloud. Prison officials said there was a safety concern, such as the prisoner grabbing the pastor. And the prison's attorney stated another concern in a news broadcast of the court hearing by Chris Six News. Each time he litigates around an execution date, he receives another lengthy reprieve. This court should not countenance the delay of a fourth execution date. And here's Kretzer's response when asked about the delays. To tell you, I don't play games. We don't do uh, delay tactics. According to Kretzer, if the state had a clear protocol regarding what a pastor can and can't do, he would not have filed the lawsuit. The Supreme Court put a hold on the execution to give more time for the case to be fully litigated in the district court. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. A congressman was convicted Thursday on charges that he lied to federal authorities about an illegal $30,000 contribution to his campaign from a foreign supporter. Republican Nebraska Congressman Jeff Fortenberry had told authorities he was unaware of the illicit funds from a Nigerian billionaire. But a campaign supporter cooperating with the FBI had spoken with Fortenberry about the money in a secretly recorded call. That's according to the Albuquerque Journal. He reportedly told the congressman during the call that he had distributed the $30,000 to friends and relatives who attended a fundraiser so they could write checks to Fortenberry's campaign. A federal jury in L.A. deliberated about two hours before finding the nine-term Republican guilty of concealing information and two counts of making false statements to authorities. The judge set sentencing for June 28th. Each count carries a potential five-year prison sentence and fines. The issue of transgender athletes participating in women's sports has become a hot-button issue among Republicans. 
This week alone, four states have taken action to ban males who identify as female from competing in girls' sports. Proponents say this is to protect scholarship opportunities and the integrity of female athletics, while critics say it's discriminatory and dehumanizing to trans athletes. Here's the latest. Oklahoma and Arizona both passed bills Thursday to ban transgender youth from participating in girls' sports. In addition, Arizona lawmakers also passed legislation that would prohibit physicians from providing so-called gender-affirming surgery to minors. This includes surgical procedures such as having the breasts and ovaries removed, as well as genital amputation and reconstruction. The bills are now heading to the governor's desk. Although both the states have Republican governors, there's no guarantee the bills will be signed into law. On Tuesday, Utah Governor Spencer Cox vetoed a bill that would ban transgender students from participating in girls' sports in public schools. And just one day earlier, Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb vetoed a similar bill in his state. Both the Republican governors argued that signing the bills into law could lead to school districts being sued and said there are too many gray areas in the legislation. Utah lawmakers are holding a veto override session on Friday, along with a special legislative session to amend the bill, as requested by the governor. Indiana Republicans are also considering a veto override. An argument made by both Republicans and Democrats against such bills is that they aren't needed since there are so few transgender athletes competing in girls' sports. But proponents say the bills are needed to resolve the issue before it becomes a problem. Many point to transgender collegiate swimmer Leah Thomas, who just last week won an NCAA Women's Division I championship title. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who has taken a hard line on the issue, later issued a proclamation declaring runner-up swimmer Emma Wyant as the rightful winner. Transgender athletes' ability to compete in female sports is expected to be a major issue in the upcoming 2022 midterm elections. And this just in, the Utah legislature has voted to override the governor's veto and enact a law barring male students from competing in girls' sports. Students are now required to compete based on their sex, as determined by their anatomy at birth. The new law does not apply to universities. And a lot of parents in the U.S. are protesting sexually explicit books found in school libraries, also known as media centers. In the name of improving transparency for parents, the Florida governor has signed a new law bill into law. It aims to shine a light on school materials. Here's the governor. Now you have some groups that want to take away classic books like To Kill a Mockingbird, but they want things like Gender Queer, a memoir, which is a cartoon-style book with graphic images of children performing sexual acts. That is wrong. That has no place in the schools. They want to eliminate Of Mice and Men, but Lawn Boy, a book containing explicit passages of pedophilia, is somehow accepted as being okay. The governor's office says the new law requires school districts to make meetings on instructional materials public, and that districts must provide access to the materials at least 20 days before any official action is taken. The state's Department of Education is also expected to publish a list of materials that have been removed by school boards as a result of parental objections. Governor Ron DeSantis says that by improving the transparency on school materials, parents will be informed and be able to object to books they consider inappropriate. The author of Gender Queer, 
argues that that particular book should be in schools because it addresses gender problems that some people are dealing with. And up next, the trend of leaving New York City seems to continue. A new survey shows many are still thinking about leaving. And a terrible tragedy at an amusement park in Orlando last night. A 14-year-old boy fell out of a ride to his death. We'll bring you the details here on NTD News. Russia and Ukraine, the largest conflict in Europe since World War II. More than two million refugees in two weeks, families torn apart, lives changed forever. A war with global consequences. Tune in for special coverage from our reporters on the ground, right here on NTD News. New York City is trying to emerge and recover from the pandemic. But a new survey shows that many employees aren't too hopeful about the Big Apple's future and might even want to leave. NTD's Arian Pazdar has more from Manhattan. Almost half of all private employees here in New York are thinking about leaving the city. The main reason for that, according to a new survey, is public safety, especially on the subway. Right after that comes the fear of catching COVID. Almost 10,000 people were interviewed throughout the last month. Key findings include 74% say safety on transit has gotten worse since the beginning of the pandemic. 62% of employees say they are pessimistic or unsure about the city's future. Only 38% are optimistic about the future. So how does crime affect New Yorkers? You know, crime is everywhere. You know, you go 34th Street, just walk by 34th Street, you see a lot of the homeless people out there, you know, and people get afraid. Make sure I get to where I have to go without getting, like, attacked because nobody wants to get attacked or even murdered. It's a different city now. It's just, uh, it's dirty. It's, uh, and it's a shame, too. You know, it's, uh, it's a great city, best city in the world, but uh, soon I'll move out. <laughs> Many already left. Manhattan suffered the nation's worst population decline during the pandemic. Almost 7% of all residents left between 2020 and 2021. And in Brooklyn, 3.5% of all people left. That's the sixth worst percentage nationwide. Ariane Pastar, NTD News, New York. A 12-year-old New Jersey boy is dead after overdosing on fentanyl. He allegedly came in contact with the substance when he cleaned his uncle's drug lab. The boy apparently wasn't wearing any gloves. The boy's uncle, 35-year-old Troy Noakes, was taken into custody Thursday. He was hit with 28 charges, including first-degree manslaughter. Investigators said Noakes' nephew lived in a New Jersey home where Noakes allegedly produced fentanyl. Noakes also allegedly told the boy to clean items that contained fentanyl. The 12-year-old was found unresponsive on a school bus. Life-saving measures were performed and the boy was brought to the hospital. He passed away later. Noakes' ex-girlfriend, Joanna Johnson, was also charged with tampering with evidence and hindering the apprehension of Noakes. And a 14-year-old boy is dead after falling from a drop tower amusement ride in Orlando's Icon Park. A clip circulating on social media shows the boy falling. 
And a warning, the following story contains images some viewers may find disturbing. In the video, you can see the ride coming down fast before it stops abruptly. That's when the 14-year-old falls out. Once down, passengers are asking to be let out of their seats so they can leave. Get us up, get us up. He was visiting uh, from his home in Missouri with another family here in Central Florida. So the Orange County Sheriff's Office role in this incident is to determine whether or not this is an accident. And based on all of our preliminary investigation and information, it appears to be a, a terrible tragedy, but our investigation is still open. 14-year-old Tyree Sampson was an honor roll student and an aspiring football player. His father said Tyree was a very good young man, a big teddy bear, a gentle giant. The father said his own life stopped when he saw the video of his son falling to his death. The free fall is a 430-foot-tall tower and ride, higher than the Statue of Liberty in New York City. The ride opened just a few months ago. Coming up after the break, the census data from 2021 is out. Of note, California's population declined. Several counties in the state appear on the top 10 list for the greatest population decreases. Well, look at who left where. And more news about California. The state's community colleges are now considering diversity quotas on hiring and tenure review. Critics say it's a divisive idea. We'll have that and much more here on NTD News. U.S. Census just released the most recent national data on Thursday. California led the nation once again, with one county having the top net decrease in residents throughout the nation. Several California counties saw the biggest population decline during the pandemic. Latest U.S. Census data released on Thursday shows four California counties made the nation's top 10 list for greatest population decline in 2021. The census looked at the U.S. counties that saw significant population declines between April 1, 2020 and July 1, 2021, coinciding with the first 15 months of the pandemic. The population declines in over two-thirds of the U.S. counties are due to natural decreases with the low birth rates. But the main reason for the decline in several counties of California is because more people moved out than those who moved in. Coming in first place was Los Angeles County, losing over 180,000 residents. Other significant decreases happened in San Francisco, Santa Clara, and Alameda County. In terms of percentages, San Francisco County lost 6.7% of its population during the same time period, second only to New York County on the national scale. The census data didn't give detailed numbers on where Californians are moving to, but it did show that Dallas, Fort Worth, Arlington region of Texas saw a net influx of more than 97,000 residents. California community colleges are considering diversity quotas in hiring and tenure review. Others describe the move as a divisive measure. NTD's Eileen Eng has more. The governing board that oversees the California community colleges is thinking about including diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility, or DEIA, to evaluate employees and tenure review processes. The chancellor and vice chancellor introduced the proposal as part of the enrollment management strategy. It aims to advance student equitable outcomes. 
The strategy requires faculties to employ teachings that reflect DEIA and anti-racist principles and in particular respect for and acknowledgement of the diverse backgrounds of students. There's our goal has been to develop a common framework for all of our districts in our system to be able to make fundamental changes to the way that we define successful performance, provide feedback to employees, and prioritize our professional development resources and efforts. However, some are concerned, calling it a divisive measure. A nonpartisan and nonprofit organization that seeks equal rights in public education, called the Californians for Equal Rights Foundation, questioned the proposal. In a statement, the foundation said the colleges would subscribe to all major tenets of critical race theory and that the changes are illiberal and toxic, serving only to further inflame racial divisions and cover up real problems in our education system. In addition, the foundation said the action also pushes higher education toward ideological indoctrination and thought conformity through creating a uniform understanding of how to evaluate for all employees. The presidents of several other community college associations also expressed their concern in a letter asking the board to make changes to the proposal. The CCC Governing Board will further discuss the proposal at a future meeting. A state lawmaker is working to repeal California's sanctuary state law. His move comes in the wake of a shooting last month that took the life of three young girls. Here's more. California Assemblyman Kevin Kiley introduced a bill earlier this week to reverse the sanctuary state law. He introduced Assembly Bill 1708 following a murder-suicide involving a father who was in the country illegally and his three daughters earlier this month. Kylie told the Epic Times that the impacts of this law have been devastating and tragic. The state's sanctuary law, Senate Bill 54, was passed into law in 2017. It prevents law enforcement's ability to contact the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, about illegal immigrants being released from jail. The man involved in the shooting, 39-year-old David Mora Rojas, had been released from jail one week prior to killing his daughters and a chaperone. He was arrested for assaulting a police officer. The shooting took place on February 28th. Mora Rojas was arranged to visit his daughters at a supervised meeting at the non-denominational place of worship, the church in Sacramento. Governor Gavin Newsom spoke out against gun violence in the wake of the shooting. It was later determined that Mora Rojas used an unregistered ghost gun. Kylie blames the law for having prevented law enforcement from contacting ICE about Mora Rojas. He said the deaths could have been prevented. Kylie added that the sanctuary law is intended to protect only criminals. The bill to repeal the sanctuary state law will likely be heard this spring. Daniel Hall, NTD News, California. Utah officials arrested 21 individuals and rescued three victims as part of its human trafficking rescue operation. Utah County Sheriff's Lieutenant Jason Randall said undercover officers posted on social media platforms as part of the operation. The officers responded to advertisements and set up a meeting place in the northern part of Utah County. They arrested the suspects when they arrived. Some of the men reportedly believed they would be meeting with a 13-year-old girl. Randall said the arrests don't even scratch the surface of Utah's human trafficking problem and that officers will continue to conduct undercover operations. AAA calls the skyrocketing gas prices March Madness at the pump. Many drivers blame the high gas prices on oil prices, 
But in some states, another culprit adds salt to the wound. Illinois might not have the highest gas prices in the country, but residents are paying a lot in gas taxes. That's according to a report by the American Petroleum Institute. Adam Schuster from the Illinois Policy Institute tells us why. Illinois has the second highest gas taxes in the nation after California. Um, that's up from a few years ago when we were only the 10th highest in the nation. Uh, that's after in 2019, Governor J.B. Pritzker signed legislation that doubled the motor fuel tax. Uh, it also um, gave broad new authority to Chicago and some of the suburban collar counties to increase local gas taxes as well. For example, in Chicago, gas prices are higher than the state average. A gallon of regular gas at this BP gas station is nearly $5 per gallon. Gas taxes are higher, too. Chicago residents pay a 31 percent tax on the retail gas price. That means right now they're paying $1.10 per gallon just for taxes. They're made up of a fuel tax and a sales tax, and the largest component of the tax is the Illinois state gas tax. The Illinois gas tax was doubled in 2019 from 18 cents a gallon to 39 cents a gallon. But because of those automatic annual increases they put in place, which are capped at a penny a year, so they, they can be less than penny, a penny a year, it's gone up uh, over those two years to 39.2 cents. Because the receipt doesn't show tax, consumers either don't know how much tax they are paying or underestimate the tax rate. It has to be like 10 percent at least or higher. I don't know, 20 percent. What, 10 percent? More. Chicago businessman Willie Wilson just gave away $1 million in gas to drivers in Chicago and the suburbs on Thursday. His gas tax estimate is... I guess if you pay 8, eight cents or 4, 5 or 10 percent or something like that. After NTD told Chicago drivers they are paying over 30 percent in gas taxes... 30 percent? I didn't know it was 30 percent, but it's high. 30 percent? Oh my God, I didn't know. Governor Pritzker has proposed freezing the automatic annual increase to give some relief to consumers. Freezing the automatic annual increase would save drivers about a penny um, for, for this year, and it would only be a temporary freeze. So starting next year, the gas tax would start to climb again. The Illinois Policy Institute proposes dropping the automatic annual increase permanently. Schuster said getting rid of automatic increases would hold politicians accountable and encourage the government to look for alternative means of funding infrastructure. Fake Order, NTD News. The Sweet 16 continues tonight with four more games on the schedule. Highlighting the matchups is a showdown between two of the winningest programs of all time, North Carolina and UCLA. NTD's Dave Martin has more. St. Peter's is this year's Cinderella story. The Peacocks from Jersey City, New Jersey upset both Kentucky and Murray State, become just the third 15 seed ever to make the Sweet 16. Their reward is to face a 29-win Purdue team that's a 13-point favorite. The high-scoring Boilermakers average nearly 80 points a game. And by now, they should know to watch for the Peacocks' backdoor screens and clutch shooter Doug Eddard on the perimeter. The lone number one seed left in the tournament, Kansas, takes on Big East champ Providence in the second matchup. The Jayhawks and Friars match up similarly with both essentially starting four perimeter players around the center. Look for the Big 12 champs to move on, though. 
UCLA and North Carolina are scheduled for the third game. The two powerhouse programs are first and third respectively in terms of most national championships, although neither was expected to do so this year. The Tar Heels have been hot of late, beating Duke and Baylor in recent weeks. But look for UCLA's defense to be too much in a Bruins win. Finally, a pair of unexpected teams face off in the finale as Iowa State takes on Miami. The Hurricanes' wire-to-wire -wire win over Auburn might have been the biggest shocker yet. Meanwhile, Iowa State held both its tournament opponents to under 55 points. Look for Miami and their short yet experienced lineup to come out on top. Dave Martin, NTD News, New York. The Denver Broncos have had the hottest offseason in the NFL so far, bringing in star quarterback Russell Wilson. But yesterday, it was their stadium that was on fire. Firefighters put out a blaze at the Mile High Stadium that burned several rows of seats in the third level, as well as a fourth level suite on Thursday. Captain Greg Pixley, a spokesman for the fire department, said it appears the fire originated in the suite, but was partially suppressed by a sp sprinkler system. It then spread to the seats, which are made of plastic. At least 100 people were attending an event on the second level when it broke out, and about 75 firefighters responded to the call. No injuries were reported. Investigators haven't said what started it. North Korean state media says the country's latest weapons test was a new powerful type of intercontinental ballistic missile. KCNA News said today that leader Kim Jong-un directly guided the Hwasong-17, North Korea's biggest missile to date. It was first showcased at a 2020 military parade. It was also the first ICBM test by the country since 2017. Here's more. Kim was quoted saying the test was key to demonstrate the might of its nuclear force and deter any U.S. military moves and a miraculous and priceless victory by the Korean people. Flight data indicated the missile flew for 681 miles, higher and longer than any of North Korea's previous tests, before it crashed into the sea just west of Japan. North Korea's return to major tests of weapons that could potentially strike the U.S., poses a direct challenge to President Joe Biden as he responds to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The launch drew condemnation from U.S. officials as well as Japan and South Korea. South Korea's recent election raises the prospect of a fresh crisis after the launch. A new, more conservative government led by Yoon Suk-yeol has pledged a more muscular military strategy to counter Pyongyang. The U.N. Security Council will meet publicly on Friday to discuss the ICBM. Coming up, we'll take a look at one of the tallest wooden skyscrapers on the planet. It's built in a Swedish city that has a strong tradition of making use of timber. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. Swedish city near the Arctic Circle has a strong tradition of making use of wood, from bridges to a multi-story wooden parking garage. And now it's embracing this heritage even more with one of the tallest wooden skyscrapers on the planet and a new cultural center built entirely from timber. NTD's Eddie Aitken has this report. 
Between northern Sweden's towering trees, the city of Helftera has a new imposing landmark, the 20-storey Sara Cultural Centre, 130 miles south of the Arctic Circle, is named after a popular Swedish author. It is theatre, it is a library, it's uh, art exhibitions, it's other event, big artists coming to visit this house. The venue also boasts restaurants and a 205-room hotel. As the world's construction industry comes under pressure to curb its environmental impact, the age-old practice of building with timber is seeing a new lease of life. The project's co-lead, Robert Schmitz, said plans for the wooden skyscraper met raised eyebrows when he put them forward in 2016. Everyone thought that we were a little bit uh, crazy almost, uh, visionaries, uh, um, suggesting or uh, proposing a, uh, a building like this in, in total in timber. Wood takes carbon dioxide from our atmosphere and stores it throughout its lifetime. And there's lots of wood in Sara Cultural Center from trees harvested within 40 miles of the town. Those behind the project say it will store 9,000 tons of carbon dioxide. And there's a focus on sustainability, with solar panels on the roof and environmentally friendly energy systems in the basement. A total control system run by artificial intelligence adapts energy and heat usage based on the number of people in the building. And the cultural center also communicates with nearby structures. When there's an abundance of energy, it's sent to a neighboring building or saved in batteries in the basement. Wooden construction is nothing new in Helftea. An 18th century wooden bridge stretches over the river flowing through its center, and there's even a wooden multi-story car park. This heritage is most obvious in the town's 17th century Bonstan area, with its 400 timber homes. They were built for church-going farmers in the area and could be moved when housing needs changed. Many of these houses might be reused from houses that, that were on the farm for, at first. They were built on the farm and then when you didn't need them, you moved them to the church town. So we, we know that wood is everlasting. They're extremely hardy, the biggest threat being fire. Most homes that visitors see today were built around 1835, after a fire destroyed the church town. For over a century, Sweden had a ban on building wooden homes over two storeys high, which was finally lifted in 1994. Thomas Alsmarker, head of innovation and research at Swedish Wood, says they've seen a huge change over the last five years, and now the sky's the limit. For all buildings up to eight storey, uh, then the question is not whether it is possible to do it in wood. You should ask, why should we not do this building in wood? Eddie Aitken, NTD News. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.